Dr. Jason Woods here, and this is the Little Big Med Podcast, where we're talking little patients, but big medicine. This is the third episode in our series arc on firearm violence. I realized that I hadn't quite explained why this issue was so important to me and why I had devoted three consecutive episodes to it. I myself am a firearm owner. I learned to shoot at a very young age in Pennsylvania and have continued to hunt and shoot throughout my life. However, I also sit in a space where I think our approach to firearm regulation has been asinine, and I wholeheartedly support treating them much more like vehicles, where licensing, skills training and testing, insurance, and ownership requirements are thought to be reasonable safety measures. I currently live in Colorado and have many friends, as well as my wife, who were here during the Columbine shooting. I myself was a resident here during the Aurora movie theater shooting and have had experiences with death by suicide with a firearm in someone close to me in my life. This series was my attempt to rationally evaluate the issues and what we as healthcare providers can do. Today's guest is Dr. Emmy Betts, an associate professor of emergency medicine at the University of Colorado, and specifically a researcher in suicide and firearm safety. She is also the founder of the Colorado Firearm Safety Coalition and works locally with firearm owners, gun ranges, and gun shops to improve safety. She has some of the most well-worded and reasoned approaches to firearm-related suicide that I've ever heard, and I have already changed my practice after discussion with her. As always, we'll jump right into the conversation. The defining theme of this series of episodes, and this will be the third in this arc, has been harm reduction and trying to get away from some of the uh, political nature of the discussion or some of the tribalism and, and really get at, uh, especially as healthcare providers, uh, how can we reduce the number of our patients who are being harmed as well as the severity of their harm? And, and that's what I really wanted to get at. So Emmy is here because she specifically does a lot of work with, with suicide and with, with self-inflicted injury. And Emmy, I'm wondering if you can give us an idea of the scope of the problem. So do we have any numbers as far as nationally, how many people are attempting suicide? What is the rate of lethality of those attempts? And do we have anything more specific to Colorado, which is where both you and I practice? So right now in the U.S., suicide is the 10th leading cause of death. Uh, I think it's something like the third leading cause of death among youth because youth don't die from as many other things, right? right? That works out to about 100 in adults. It's about 123 suicide deaths a day. We know there are a lot more attempts than than deaths. And Colorado in particular has a very high suicide rate. The U.S. Is, as a whole, if you want the numbers, it's 13.4 suicide deaths per 100,000 per year. And in Colorado, we're 19.4. So the Mountain West states tend to have higher suicide rates. That's a whole other conversation in and of itself. But it's due in part, at least, to uh, availability of firearms. So we know access to a firearm increases the risk of death by suicide. That is not because having a gun makes you suicidal, but rather because suicide attempts using a firearm the case fatality rate's about 90%. That's much higher than other methods. Medications, it's sort of in the 20s. Hanging is, you know, probably high up high as well, but 70% or so. But firearms are the most lethal method of suicide. So then we know, if you look overall at suicides in the U.S., about 50% are completed with a firearm. And if you then flip that the other way and you think about, well, what proportion of gun deaths are suicides. In the U.S. as a whole, it's about 60%. In Colorado, when you take all our gun deaths, 75% are suicides. So in my mind, you can't 
reduce suicide rates without talking about firearms, and you can't reduce firearm deaths without talking about suicide. It's a really good way to think about it. We don't always actually consider the fact that uh, the majority of the deaths that we're seeing from from guns and from firearms are not inflicted one person to another. They're, they're self-inflicted, and I don't think that we always approach that. Are you aware of any specific numbers for youths or, or people that might be specifically considered in the pediatric population as far as how often gun-related suicide is occurring in them? Uh, so we know overall, it looks like youth suicide rates, unfortunately, are going up. And among youth, I think that it's about 40% are by uh, firearm of completed youth suicides. So youth, uh, more often than adults, use other methods, but still 40% is a big chunk. And then importantly, we know that, uh, at least for one study, that when a youth uses a, a firearm for suicide, most of the time it's the parent's gun. About 85% of the time, it's the parent's firearms which really gets to the importance of counseling parents, I would argue of any teenager, that they need to be locking up guns, certainly youth who've got uh, risk factors for suicide. So, I mean, we know that the a prior attempt is one of the biggest risk factors for future completion. At the same time, we also know that uh, only a small minority of people who survive an attempt later kill themselves by suicide. I think it's really important we remember it's, it's about 10% of people who survive an attempt later die by suicide. So this is not an inevitable thing. It's not a terminal illness. Most people don't go on to die. But I think it's really important we recognize that. But certainly mental illness, so depression, bipolar, schizophrenia can be risk factors for suicide. You know, we also think about things like social isolation, alcohol abuse, both intoxication and, and chronic abuse. And there's a, a long other list. I think the easy way to think about it is someone who's maybe has a background of mental illness, but then there's some kind of acute crisis. I don't know exactly how to ask this question, but is there much data on the impulsivity of the decision to commit suicide and either how long people contemplate it or how long they go from first thoughts of it to actually making an attempt? There was an interesting study where they interviewed people who'd survived a near-fatal attempt and they asked them, how long was it from the time you decided to do it to the time you took action? And in a very large proportion, it was only minutes. I think it was something like uh, maybe 80%, I'm, I'm forgetting the number right now, but somewhere in the high proportions who said it was less than a few hours. So there certainly can be a background of longstanding distress for whatever reason, but that the final decision is often very impulsive. And that's why we talk about locking up guns, locking up toxic medications, other dangerous weapons. We, as, as especially working in the ER, are often point of first contact for just for screening for people who might be at risk for suicide, but also for patients who come in specifically because of mental health concerns. And something that, that I've always wondered is how good are we at actually asking the question of those patients who either we discover or who show up and are, are high risk or report that they're actively thinking of suicide at asking them about what access to lethal means they have, and, and this is firearms or otherwise. So we've done two different studies and some others are looking at this as well. I would say it's probably roughly 20% of cases. So we did one study where we looked at charts of all adult patients who'd had a positive risk screen for suicide. So we do universal screening. Anybody who screamed positive, we then looked and only 18% of those patients had documentation that anybody had asked them or counseled them about access to means. So that could have been a physician, social worker, nurse. We work in care teams. So is it always the physician's responsibility? No, but I do think it's something we should be doing, especially for patients going home. It's it's an important factor. I'll say, too, I think that we, when we do ask, we do it at sort of two different times. So sometimes we ask because it factors into our risk assessment. So if somebody says they have a whole collection of guns at home and they're not going to lock them up, that might make us a little bit more concerned that they might imminently do something, right? We're actually better, I think, at asking in that 
sense when we're getting our sort of risk assessment done or gathering the, his, the history of suicide risk factors. We're not as good at talking about it right before somebody goes home and thinking about what's the plan to keep this person safe in the short term, uh, you know, while they're following up as an outpatient. So you brought this up to me for the very first time, and I had never thought of it before, was let's say you have a patient and you have asked them, you know, what do you have access to at home? And and they have indicated that they have firearms, but they're actually interested in having them stored somewhere else that makes it more safe for them so that they don't have impulsive access to it. And there are some surprising legal potential barriers to that, which I had not thought of. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. First, just say when we, t- when we think about these conversations around reducing access, it's a lot like the sort of designated drug analogy. This is not about someone giving up their guns or having them confiscated. It's about just finding a way to make sure they're not behind the wheel when they shouldn't be driving. Every state's a little bit different in terms of their background check requirements, but the background check issue is the one that in particular can make it a little complicated to transfer firearms. So as an example, in Colorado, if you want to give your gun to your neighbor for safekeeping, technically after 72 hours, you have to do a background check on that person. Every state's different. It's confusing. And I think it's a, it's useful if providers try to know their state laws. But even if you don't ever figure out what your state laws are, I think as a provider, just knowing that there might be legal restrictions on who you can or can't give your gun to can be helpful when you're talking to patients. And then if they really want that option, you can say, okay, we'll figure it out. We'll find out for you. I think the danger is if you say things like, just get it out of the house, just give it to somebody else. A a firearm owner very often will know that that's not legal. And I think then you lose some of their trust. What options are available outside of giving it to a first-degree family member? You said potentially giving it to a friend, but then there needs to be a background check. Are there other avenues? Yeah, that's an, um, so that's one option that we talk about a lot. We just finished a survey led by a colleague here at the School of Public Health of all the gun shops in the Mountain West states, in eight states. And about 50% of them said they currently offer temporary storage, whether it's someone at risk of suicide or just somebody going out of town for an extended period of time. So I think for ranges, for shops, it's important to call first because because they don't all offer it. They're not required to offer it. And they're going to also vary in terms of the paperwork and so forth. So some of them, it's more like a safe deposit box where you keep a key and so you still actually have possession. So there's no there's no background checks. Others, it might be different. And then law enforcement is the other option that people often talk about. I think, understandably, a lot of people aren't going to want to take their guns to the police. So it's always an option. You can always at least, I think, call the police to ask, hey, do you know where pe- somebody could store them? But just know a lot of people might not want to. And the police are also not required to store guns. In the in our survey, it was of law enforcement as well, and um, only about 75% currently offer storage. You mentioned, I think you mentioned this in the intro, that one of the things that you've been involved in is a program here similar to one that exists elsewhere of some efforts with the local gun shops to partner with them as far as safety, but as I also believe as far as screening. So can you tell me a little bit about that effort? We started the Colorado Firearm Safety Coalition, I think about two or three years ago now. I think it was 2015. Um, And it was modeled after similar partnerships in other states. Uh, The New Hampshire Gun uh, Firearm Safety Coalition was the first one that started. And they vary in their sort of composition. Ours is a mix of public health professionals, doctors, other sort of interested people in suicide prevention, and then some firearm instructors and owners of some big, big ranges in town. And the purpose of the coalition is to work together and think creatively about how to educate firearm owners about suicide prevention. So we don't talk about laws. We we're not. I'm sure we don't agree on a lot of things, but we 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 keep it in the realm of education. The, there's now a national program actually that's joint 
between the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and the National Shooting Sports Foundation, where they basically develop materials for distribution at gun stores nationwide around suicide prevention. To me, it has been just wonderful to see how excited people have been about this. And I think really shame on us in public health for maybe not having done this sooner. Um, I think there are a lot of audiences who've never gotten even some of the basic messages about suicide prevention, like it's okay to ask or it's okay to get help and it's okay to need help. And if we know that access to firearms increases the risk of suicide death because of that impulsivity, then of course we need to be talking about to firearm owners about this. Right. Are you you actually suggesting that that physicians can work with firearm owners and and uh, don't have to automatically be on opposite sides of the aisle? I am. And in fact, I think we should probably remember that a lot of physicians are firearm owners. Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. not myself, but um, but I think that there's just so much we can learn from each other. And I think particularly as healthcare providers, our personal beliefs should be outside of the exam room, right? Or the ER, the <laughs> the hallway bed, whatever, wherever <laughs> it is you're working. And so how is it that we can best work with our, our patients? So do you have suggestions for how to actually talk to patients about this? So um, either, you know, ones that have specifically come to the emergency room because of some sort of mental health crisis or ones that you discover along the way. So I think what we know from the literature is that people want what they want in every other situation, really, which is patient-centered care. So they want to feel like individuals, but they also don't want to feel singled out. So I think if you're working with parents of a teen who's at risk for of suicide, for example, saying, you know, every time we talk with families where kids at risk, we want to talk about home safety. Let's talk about what your home looks like so that you make it clear why you're asking or why you're talking about it, but then bring it back to what's going to work for them. If you have firearms at home, it's really important at this time that you lock them up so your child doesn't have access or you move them out of the home. We can talk about some of the ways to do that if you want. Do you have ideas about what would work for you and so forth? I think it can also sometimes be helpful to link it to things like toxic medications. I mean, we know the case fatality rate of medication overdoses is much, much, much lower. But I think sometimes linking it to other items makes it feel a little less like singled out so they don't feel like you're just picking on the guns. I think it's helpful to explain why guns, why we really worry about them because they are inherently lethal. But if you know you frame it in the sense of how can we make the home environment safer during this tough time and lock up all your prescription medications and lock up the guns or can you move them out of the house, that, that kind of thing. And then sort of obviously don't use words like confiscate, give away. <laughs> I mean, it, some of that seems pretty obvious, but yeah. yeah. No, that's yeah. good. I don't know that I, I would actually uh, think about making sure that we don't we don't say those words either to them or to the, the parents. Yeah. I mean, I think you're also not trying to get them to change their identity, right? You're not asking them to make a permanent lifestyle change. For whatever reason, they own firearms. It might be a big part of their culture, whether it's recreation and so forth. And so um, you're really just trying to problem solve about making things safer during a tough time. Um, I'm a PDR doc, and so a lot of our audience specifically are folks that are taking care of the pediatric population. So is there any guidance for, and this this actually occurred to me in the last couple of weeks, where you have a patient who, who there is significant concern for either danger to themselves or to other people. Family has a firearm at home, but doesn't necessarily seem interested in restricting access or or doesn't seem to understand why you think it's, it's that big of a deal. Two-parter is, you know, do you have strategies for how to get them on board? with how dangerous it can be, but also too, are there any legal requirements or avenues for, for you as a physician that's concerned? Great question. So the first part, I would say, you know, it's about 
like anything, trying to explore their understanding and sort of what the barriers in their, in their mind are. So I think explaining some of the basics about the impulsivity of suicide, if that's a tough concept to explain, sometimes I think of it more as like, you know, we've all been so upset we can't see straight, right? And like in that moment, you can do stupid things. And then teenager brains especially are sort of prone they're, to they're stupid things, developed. right? You know that. So, Though I'm not <clears throat> entirely sure that mine is fully developed either. So. <laughs> no, no comment on that. <laughs> so I think um, if, you know, potentially trying to frame it in that sense to get them to understand, like, look, it's it's not that you can't go hunting with your son. It's that right now he, it's important that he not have access to them, right? Um, at the end of the day, we, in any case, right, we do what we can, but we can't force people into making yeah. decisions. In some cases, I suppose access to things at home might factor into your overall risk assessment. So if an adult is not willing to safety plan or address risk at home, like that potentially would change your assessment of what kinds of services they need. I'm not saying that people who own guns need to be hospitalized right. at all, but but just that it's one thing, you know, we think about. In terms of legal avenues, so, and I'm not talking here about young children and access and neglect, abuse kinds of things. I'm yeah. not talking about that. Yeah, yeah. So um, right now there's not much in the realm of legal options for physicians. A few states have passed gun violence restraining orders or extreme risk protection orders, they're called, or red flag laws, California and Connecticut and a few others. Those allow family members or law enforcement to temporarily remove guns from the home when someone is at risk of harm to imminent risk of harm to themselves or others. But healthcare providers are not on the list of who can report. So that would be more like a situation like, let's say, somebody's really worried about their brother who's an adult and the family wants to get the guns out of his house, they could petition the police to, and with a judge's order, they can have okay. the guns removed. Yeah. But so otherwise for us right now, there's not a lot. I mean, I think there are brochures and things you can give people, including some made by, you know, so within the firearm industry. And you can hope that some of those will help. Yeah. You mentioned this before. I, I'm coming at this maybe not even specifically from a healthcare provider, but you know, you've got a friend or a family member, somebody in your personal life. Are there ways to talk to those patients about self-harm? And and I'm specifically thinking something that I was absolutely told in high school by my friends that you looking back sounds stupid now, that that just by asking somebody about whether they're thinking about hurting themselves can can trigger them, that, that you might be able to make them they weren't thinking about hurting themselves and now they are and it's your fault. Okay. So that was like a high school rumor. Man. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, no, we really need to get past that. So it's totally not true. Um, and I will say, you know, in the with the coalition work we've done and some some fun educational nights, like at ladies' night at the at the gun club, the same kinds of questions come up that I think that myth is really still out there in the general public. It is absolutely okay to ask someone if they've have been having thoughts of suicide. Um, you're not going to trigger the suicide, and in fact you know, you might help bring some relief to that person for opening up. So do you have any words of advice for folks that are out there that maybe are in a state that doesn't have a similar program to what you were working on as far as, you know, a um, uh, um, collaboration with uh, local gun shops or, or shooting sports places as far as how to get one of those started or, yeah. or sort of, you know, how did you go about it? What was your story? So I think in many of the states, they – just sort of develop. So my particular story, uh, Colorado, the, the Department of Public Health and Environment was already doing the so-called gunshot project with information. In my particular case, I wrote an editorial in a journal and a physician who's a firearms instructor then emailed me and was like, the editorial was about how we need cultural competence. We need to be working with patients and respectful and so forth. So a physician who read it 
And Colorado emailed me and was like, if you're serious, let's do this. And so then I took the basic training course with him and we, we founded the coalition I threw together. down a gauntlet at you. He totally did. It was great. We had a really awkward first phone call where we were like <laughs> feeling each other out. Um, but it's been, it's been great. I think – so the first thing I'd say is that if you are in a state and you don't know if something exists – can contact me because I may know that sort of there's an, they're scattered around, but a lot of states don't have anything. And if you then want to start something, I think you first could potentially try your state health department suicide prevention to see if they're already doing anything. You can also just go to a gun store and start talking to people if you're, you know, if you're serious about, and you don't need to even start a whole coalition if you don't, if, you know, depending on your interests. But I think just identifying your own interests and knowledge deficits and then go fix them. I, I treat patients of a, where I'm never going to experience what they're experiencing because right. of gender or age or whatever it is, right? Um, and I think this is a, can be a similar thing. It's a, it's a, there's a cultural gap and you don't have to um, agree with everything or join in, but I think you need to be know how to be respectful to patients and work with them in ways that are actually going to be effective. We had talked a little bit about um, uh, you know, the, the rates of documentation of us, somebody in the healthcare environment asking patient about access to lethal means if there is concern for potential self-harm is not that great. Are there known barriers for like, why, why are we as a community not asking that question maybe as often as we would, as we should be? So I think there's a long list of reasons from what we know from, from research, from qualitative work and from surveys. Um, I think among ED providers, there's still some skepticism about suicide even being preventable. And I think we get some burnout and biases against mental health patients. I think we need to own that as a specialty and really work hard to, to combat those biases. I think related to firearms in particular, so some of us maybe just never had thought about asking or didn't know because, I mean, I didn't learn this in residency. This is all since residency that I've gotten into this topic. So I think some is just basic education. Then I think we don't want to make our patients angry, right? We're really worried. What are they going to say? Like, I don't want to... I don't want to cause him, make him upset. I think then we don't know what to say when they say yes to. Like, well, then if they do have guns, like, what do I do with yeah, that now? What do I respond? And then, of course, we have horrible time constraints. I mean, it, we're all really busy. There's a million things we're supposed to be doing. You know, this is one more that, sure, sometimes we forget to do. I think it doesn't necessarily need to be the physician doing it, but I think somebody on the care team needs to be. So if you have some kind of behavioral health evaluator doing it, just at least um, if they're seeing the patient to make sure that it's part of their standard care. And there are probably a whole lot of other reasons, too. <laughs> How do we, you know, build it into our system so it yeah, makes sense a, in our that's flow? That's a good point. Uh, more more CMS core measure three hour bundles. That's, yeah, that's that would be that would be what we need. <laughs> An epic BPA. Yes. <laughs> um, anything else that you want to add into the discussion? Sort of things that um, you you would like the general ER population to know uh, about your work. I guess what I would say is that just I would just really encourage people to break out of their comfort shell a little bit. I think so for physicians who own firearms, I think they have an opportunity to teach their colleagues about it and uh, help make them feel a little more comfortable. And for those who don't, I, you know, to learn what you need to know. And again, I think as private citizens, we can have our own viewpoints and get involved in whatever activities we want and so forth, right? But I think when we're talking about what we can do for our, for our patients, it's not about politics. This is about what we know can help keep our patients safe at home. And I think we know that a lot of people are seen in emergency departments before they 
kill themselves. So we have a we we really can do a lot. These deaths are preventable. Just locking up guns alone is not going to prevent them all. Of course, people need follow-up treatment and, and or medications and so forth and so forth. But I think the home safety piece is 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 really important and it's actually a pretty easy thing for us to do. And that's going to wrap things up both for this episode and our current arc on firearm violence. I want to thank Dr. Emmy Betts so much for being here today and spending so much time talking with me about this before we even started to record. I will have a number of links in the show notes to the resources that she mentioned, as well as information on how to contact her if you are looking to start a similar program in your area. I've been your host as always, Dr. Jason Woods. Please keep the conversation going by finding me on Twitter at jwoodsmd, via email at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com, or on the Little Big Med website, www.littlebigmed.com. Don't forget to head on over to iTunes and leave a review to help others find us. It really does assist with getting our name out there. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast is recorded in the studios of the Digital Scholarship Accelerator at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. 